Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming Streamline Studios of Outlaw Radio, this is True Crime Uncensored <clears throat> with the legendary Burl Bear. I'm Mark Boyer, your fact checker. Burl happily yeah. is in self-seclusion. We're all happy about it. Right, Matt? <laughs> People couldn't be more thrilled. When it comes to social distancing, I'm doing everyone a favor. Yes. So how, 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 how be you? How be me? Uh, me be sir crazy. <laughs> uh, I understand, so. Uh, gee, I, I love to be there in person making mouth noises, eating food on the radio. Excellent. I, um, I was bald uh, yesterday, and I went and got my mail. You got your mail? Yeah. I kind of wondered about that. I've been hoping to get some females, but the social distancing's killing me. Well, you have one in the house. Oh, yeah. But she's distancing herself from you, too. Wait, why don't you come over and see if you can convince her to participate? <laughs> no, Maybe if we reasoned with her. <laughs> yeah, social distancing is supposed to take place in your own home after three weeks. I see. Um, I so, in the, in the name of shameless self-promotion, what are yes. we talking about today? Uh, myself, I think I'm a very important person, and uh, if you're nice to me, I'll do a program. Well, <laughs> isn't that Donald special. Trump impersonation. I want to hear some appreciation, please. Okay, uh, here you go. Actually, I was going back and looking over my brilliant career, and I found it most distressing. I see. Uh, we've had Lee Meller on the show several times, uh, and he used to be the, uh, the editor of an excellent magazine called Serial Killer Quarterly, every serial killer's favorite magazine. And uh, somehow he convinced me, with money, I think, <laughs> to, uh, to do some uh, articles for the magazine, which I did. Uh, what about the Yorkshire Ripper? Uh, or someone who thinks of the Yorkshire Ripper, or people who think someone else should be the Yorkshire Ripper. Okay, is, is that does that go with put? Um, yeah, I was going to uh, share a little bit about that. I, I wrote a few articles for uh, uh, Serial Killer Quarterly. And in fact, I was looking online uh, just last night, and uh, Google Books, because I very seldom have copies of my own books, because... I don't know. Why would I read them? I wrote them. Uh, people will often ask me, gee, do you have a free copy of your book? I say, sure. Same, same, uh, same day you get a free copy of your dentist. But uh, if you, um, where do you, where do you get most of your ideas? How, do, how does you come across a story? How did I come across doing the Yorkshire Ripper? Well, no, just to, you know, stories in general. You, you know, you, you, what makes you decide? This story would be interesting for the small number of people who like to read them. The <laughs> small number of people who like to read my stuff? Uh, well, actually, with Serial Killer Quarterly, me, uh, Lee Meller told me what uh, to write about. Huh? He says, hey, Burl, do an article on this topic, that topic. Usually with books, like when I was under contract to uh, Kensington Publishing for their Pinnacle True Crime series, I had an excellent editor named Karen Haas. We had kind of a Vulcan mind meld. It was just fantastic. One of the best editors I ever worked with. And uh, our relationship was so good, when I, I wanted to do a book, I'd say, okay, here's, shall we say, four different cases that are interesting. Now, one case that I wanted to do was a crime that took place in uh, Kansas. Now, you'd think that Kansas would be like most states where where being the police department is uh, a socialist organization, everything belongs to uh, everybody on police departments, and you can get copies of any police reports, get all the information you want, because your tax dollars pay for the police department, therefore you're entitled to it. However, in Kansas, if you put in a uh, uh, public information request on a police report, what you get is, brace yourself... The cover page. That's right. That's it, the cover page. Well, then, uh, I guess no one's going to write about crime in Kansas. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the only way you're going to be able to write about the crime being is all you get to the cover page is the chief of police has to decide whether or not they want to cooperate and let you have the information that, by law, you're entitled to. Well, that made doing a book very difficult, <laughs> so we didn't do that book. We did the other ones. 
But I, I would give her a choice of, say, four different cases. Which one do you like? Well, true crime books, like uh, all other uh, financial enterprises, is research-based. They find out what people want to read about, and then they put out books that match what you want to read about. Probably they also look for look at who's reading the books. Who gets what? <clears throat> they probably research the demographics of who's reading them. Well, you know, we know who reads true crime, and this also explains why we're on Outlaw Radio. Is true crime is a female-driven genre. More women buy and read true crime books than uh, any other gender <laughs> or combination thereof. Excuse me. So being at Outlaw Radio, primary audience is males 18 to 25 with a good chance of doing uh, 25 to 50. In terms of years in prison, I thought it would be interesting to do a true crime show aimed at men and see how they responded to that. Because I thought men would enjoy true crime as much as women if they just got into it. And uh, sure enough, people who are not... uh, (laughs) Not used to what we do. <laughs> so what the hell is this nonsense? Because our program is trying to attract men more than women. Dan Zapansky has a show that I really enjoy, and most people do also, especially if I'm on it. Well, yeah. uh, a lot of uh, women listen to that. How many women listen to our show? Uh, they have to be able to put up with a lot of male nonsense, a lot of testosterone overdose. But uh, guys like it, and so guys are getting into true crime because they listen to our show which I think is kind of nice. Uh, so that was the theory behind doing a true crime on Central now on radio. It's a true crime show aimed at the male demographic. So you put a bunch of guys in Matt Allen's bar, uh, replica given, uh, was it 1876 for Jesus Town Bar, Matt Allen's backyard, and the show produced by Matt Allen. And uh, we sit around there usually in the bar laughing and scratching and making too much noise eating potato chips. Well, I, if they can stand that, they can put up with, well, just about anything. Well, and in, in, uh, in honor of that. for Matt's show, because if they can put up with us, uh, Matt almost seems like a relief. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so why, why, don't we, why don't we talk about some of the lovely material you have produced? Some of the what? Lovely material you have produced. Lovely material. I have some herringbone here. Ah. that I think you'd like. And the uh, Fabric of America could use it. <laughs> I think the up. Fabric of America is splintered. Yeah, Fabric of Our Lives. I don't take a cotton to that. Oh, uh, where was I? Oh, yes. Uh, I was looking for a Serial Killer Quarterly. I should have just left everything up on the computer from last night on Google Books, which I guess you uh, can get to by going, I'll type in my name. And it says, this guy is nuts. Uh-huh. And he's also imagining. Yeah, Dick Clark was a very talented fellow. Uh, and apparently hard to work with. I don't know. Uh, my friend Alan Goldblatt worked for Dick Clark. And uh, they got along pretty well. Mm-hmm. But you got to figure, here was a guy in Philadelphia playing the hits. Uh-huh. Came up with American Bandstand. A bunch of kids dancing from Philadelphia. I think that I'll give that show an 88. And, yeah, he's got a good beat. You can dance to it. Well, that's what they said to uh, to this guy Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, whether he was a Yorkshire Ripper or not. So he told his wife, his wife's name was Sonia, and when they came to take him away, Sonia said, what on earth is going on, Peter? And Peter Sutcliffe said, uh, it's me, I'm the Yorkshire Ripper, I killed all those women. His wife said, what on earth did you do that for, Peter? <laughs> Which I thought was a rather interesting uh, question to ask. For for the uneducated uh, in the audience, is there a difference between the Yorkshire Ripper and Jack the Ripper? Yes, uh, about a hundred and some years. Yorkshire Ripper uh, were contemporaries, like recently, you know, not that long ago. His dear wife, we met when he was 20 years old and quartered for eight years before they tied the knot, was understandably unamused, especially considering that only weeks before, the childless couple were approved to adopt. Now, Sonia previously experienced the pain of numerous miscarriages, perhaps due to damage caused by a late-detected sexually transmitted disease in her younger days. Social workers who endorsed Peter Sutcliffe as a perspective, perspective foster father were unaware of Peter's ongoing solicitation of prostitutes. Now, his brother-in-law, Robert Holland, and he would go out, you know, cruising 
the red light district, and they'd uh, sample and share fresh new faces of well-known regulars. At home, Peter played the part of a pious husband, often pontificating of the evils of infidelity. Well, hypocrisy trumps infidelity, and Peter's brother-in-law finally refused to uh, keep facilitating uh, Peter's sampling of the local hookerettes. When Sutcliffe's arrest coming so soon after the official approval of him as a foster father, uh, there was ordered an immediate cover-up. A guy to the cover-up was Council Chief Lawrence Coughlin. Quote, I got a quote from him. He says, I made sure nothing was ever said about this, even to the police investigating the killings. I think about it every day, and there are nights when I just can't get to sleep. It's the consequences of what we did that alarms me so. Had this man not been arrested, he would have carried on killing and would have ended up looking after a boy or girl that he was responsible for. And would have probably been fine with him. He probably would. He probably would have been just fine raising. He probably would have, yes. Actually, come to think of it. We, we, we've talked about this with other cases uh, over the years, that uh, <clears throat> short of being schizophrenic, uh, some of these individuals have completely different lives. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's called compartmentalization. Yeah. They uh, compartmentalize, keep them in different boxes. And what really causes problems, as we mentioned before, is when those worlds collide. Like when Ann Rule took uh, Kid Bundy out and wanted to go dancing with this girl that looked like all of his previous victims. And now here is two separate worlds were colliding. And uh, he got so drunk, Ann had to take him home and uh, undress him and put him to bed. And the reason he was so upset and got so drunk is because those the lines between his two different lives suddenly got crossed. Mm-hmm. Now, getting back to uh, the Yorkshire Ripper, detectives involved in the Ripper investigation never knew about the Sutcliffe's plan to adopt. Uh, I was in London at the time of his trial at Old Bailey, recalled Coughlin. Coincidentally, I was staying at the same motel as the senior detectives of the case, but I kept quiet about what I knew. I've decided to speak now because it's right, and it's, you know, it's been long enough. Some people may think that Peter Sutcliffe has been treated harshly, but the time is not right to reveal the man's plans to care for a child. The man was a con man. He was uh, interviewed by police on several occasions and conned his way out of it. He was interviewed by our social worker several times, and he conned them as well. He's a bad, bad man, and suggested that he should be allowed out of Broadmoor and infuriate me. Fortunately, he was arrested. The whole thing was hushed up before any child was placed with him for appraisal. It haunts me that we may have sent a child to live with this man. Now, Coughlin isn't the only one haunted by uh, by memories of uh, this guy. <laughs> oh, not at all. Uh, there's a true crime author uh, who uh, got really upset <laughs> during the trial of watching this guy sitting next to him. Uh, his wife... Uh, the author, let me get back to the author. Barbara Jones is her name. Now, regarding Sutcliffe and his wife, Barbara Jones said, Sonia, that's the wife, is the most irritating, strangest, and coldest person I ever met. She's so incredibly prickly and demanding. I felt hate for her in court. I was boring a hole in her skull with my eyes. What a pleasant person. Mm. As for spending time with Peter Sutcliffe, Jones felt very uncomfortable sitting next to him uh, during the, uh, the trial. Uh, he has mad, staring eyes. I used to feel I was going there for the victims. That doesn't sound too heroic. I thought if anyone was going to get the truth out of this evil bastard, I was the one. I wanted to find him living in ghastly, solitary confinement, wasting away, full of remorse, with everybody hating him. I found precisely the opposite. He's smug, really happy about himself, and all these women coming to visit him. He has all his comforts, adulation, a huge mail-back fan mail every day. Peter Sutcliffe uh, is now somebody. Uh, he used to be the nobody. Today he's a celebrity. Do you, uh, do, you find, do you find in your experience that some of these individuals want to get caught so they can be? Oh, yes. The perfect example of that, because I mentioned Dan Zapansky earlier, not that Dan's a serial killer, but he wrote a... Uh, <laughs> Well, he's a serial sleeper. It's a matter of opinion. Uh, uh, Dan wrote a fabulous book called uh, uh, The Show We Dance Murders uh, about, uh, what's his name, Treehouse, who the guy his name is, uh, who killed, who did this horrible crime precisely for that reason. He wanted to be known as the worst 
murdering criminal in the history of Canada. And uh, he gave him that award. I think uh, Canada's Got Talent. Mm. He uh, seduced this guy and then murdered him, chopped his head off, uh, uh, had sex with the guy's eyeball sockets. You know, rather disgusting stuff like that. Well, uh, how lovely. Yeah. And everyone, bon appetit. Yeah, what happened to is true. Um, I, I, I know, I know a particular uh, pig farmer in Canada that might disagree with the moniker, but yeah, that pig farmer guy. Well, he, you know, that's another weird one. We had on the uh, the woman who wrote the book about the uh, the pig farmer. Now in Canada, they have different rules. You can't talk about a, uh, uh, a ongoing, case. Yeah, an ongoing case. Uh, even if it's, the case is ongoing, I mean, even if the trial is on, you can't report on it. So I had to wait till the whole thing was over. That was really bizarre because it wasn't the police didn't know this guy was murdering people. They did know. Uh, people kept coming and saying, hey, you know, the, uh, the guy with the pig farm, and it wasn't some like little pig farm where the guy's, you know, hardly scraping by. He was a multimillionaire. It was a very successful pig farm. And he was uh, taking women up there, hanging them up like they were pigs, gutting them, screwing them, gutting them before and after. And then feeding them to his livestock. Yeah. And uh, the cops knew it. But they didn't have the money or the resources to pursue the case. Even though he had several experts on serial killers from the U.S. and elsewhere go up to Canada and say, here's how to handle it, they didn't have the budget. So that was their excuse. We don't have the money, we don't have the manpower, we don't have the expertise. And besides, he's killing prostitutes, so we don't think they're real people. Well, surprise, they are. <laughs> I know, I've done personal investigation, and I can guarantee you they are real human beings. <coughs> and so I think we have a union up in Canada now. All right, so um, how did the, the Yorkshire Ripper get caught? Well, that's therein lies the crux of the biscuit. Right. There are those who say that Peter Sutcliffe isn't really the Yorkshire Ripper. That uh, he's taking, shall we say, credit or blame for things he didn't do. Uh-huh. Now, Sutcliffe was a nobody for most of his life. In school, he wasn't voted best liked, but he also wasn't voted most likely to murder hookers. As a teenager, he was accused by neighbors of killing cats and dogs. That's not a good sign. But police never followed up with an investigation. He dropped out of school when he was only 15. He lived up to everyone's low expectations by failing at numerous menial jobs, including two turns as a grave digger. That's an interesting hobby, or actually an interesting uh, uh, profession, where he distinguished himself by allegedly stealing jewelry from the deceased and posing corpses in a variety of questionable positions. Okay. Uh, any, any, of them he, any of them hedge fund operator? Uh, hopefully. He never had much of a romantic life prior to his marriage. His wife, Sonia, was loyal and appreciative of Peter's acquired maturity and reliability. She desired both a career and children, but an unexpected episode of schizophrenia prevented the completion of her studies. Now, prior to matrimony, Peter avoided romantic rejection by purchasing sexual favors from experienced coital professionals. Uh-huh. Now, women of this profession are often excellent therapists, but many fail to grasp the primary point of the interaction. It isn't as much about sex as it is about not having fear of rejection. Now, there's been studies done, and he digresses, on what are the uh, number one fantasies of men and what are the number one fantasies of women. The number one fantasies of, of men is exactly that, uh, no fear of rejection. The biggest fear of men is being rejected by women, and quite often that's why they purchase someone who pretends to think they're just dandy and who they can spend an hour with, who never makes them wrong and gives them a bad time, etc. It is as much about sex as it is about not having fear of rejection. Men are emotionally vulnerable when seeking services of sexual professionals, and disrespecting or hurting the feelings of a client is exceptionally unwise and potentially dangerous. It is standard Peter Sutcliffe lore that he was fascinated with and angered by female sex workers. Apparently he was robbed, cheated, and or insulted by a working woman sometime in his life. Otherwise, from any perspective, is the entire point of a man securing such services is to not be insulted or belittled. Henceforth, in his interaction with prostitutes, 
Sutcliffe was perfectly happy to have the upper hand, which was the one wielding a hammer. This is where you get Maxwell's silver hammer by the Beatles. That's based on uh, Sutcliffe. There are those who experience Sutcliffe as passive and amusingly daft, hardworking, devoted, while others, especially those whom he attacked, view him as downright evil. Barbara Jones, author of Voices from an Evil God, not to disappoint her readers, or to avoid setting up my next paragraph, said, I felt the force of his evil. Well, let's face it. The Yorkshire Ripper is considered evil because he does evil deeds. And he does evil deeds because, yes, he's evil. Now, this circular reasoning leaves us believing that he's not one of us, that he's far, far from us. He's evil. Evil does not exist as some outside force. When it's bright outside, it's because the sun's shining. When it's dark outside, it's because we've turned away from the light, not because there's a negative sun radiating darkness. Be it a nation or an individual, once we label them evil, we have created a monster, something other than human, perhaps supernatural, and no different than a work of fiction. Evil need never be understood or studied. Evil simply must be eliminated. Uh, Dr. Scott Bond, in his book, Mad Deception, American Invasion of Iraq, is a sociologist, as you know, and he had his interest suddenly perked up when he heard uh, Saddam Hussein referred to as evil by our president, which was the first time he'd heard that word usage, and he knew the only time you use that word is when you want to totally dehumanize them so that you can attack them. He goes, uh-oh, we got a war coming. So we started doing his uh, sociological research on the upcoming, of course, was that upcoming invasion of Iraq. One of the most telling things is that someone in the administration at that time was asked, I think it was maybe July or August, are we going to, uh, are we getting ready to invade Iraq? The answer was, you never introduce a new product in the summer. <coughs> That was the answer. You don't introduce a new product in the summer. You're viewing it as a product to sell the war. And, of course, they waited until fall, as one does if one's introducing a new product. Yeah, and virus. Yorkshire Ripper is the pop culture name of a real-life person, someone who was once a mother's newborn son. Yeah, he's got some issues. He hits women over the head with bricks, hammers, or other... Uh, other sundry, objects. blunt objects. They don't um, like that. I you mentioned mention. that you mentioned that there are. Now you there have to speak up. I can't hear you. You mentioned that there are those who don't believe he actually committed the crimes. What's that based on besides just their nuts? Oh yeah, uh, we had Neil O'Gara on, who insists that the Yorkshire Ripper was this other guy who actually worked for him, who pretty much confessed to it, but then again, the guy confessing may have been a lie. But Neil's uh, very, thoroughly convinced that uh, this other guy was actually the Yorkshire Ripper. Now, the, the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper consumed the resources of law enforcement and was set up, of course, several times due to the information overload, the inability to cross-reference data, most of all by what was eager, the egotistic manipulations of Billy Tracy or a cruel hoax perpetrated by a guy named John Samuel Humble who pretended to be the Yorkshire Ripper in a number of communications in 1978. This Ripper sent three taunting letters to the police and a cassette tape message spoken in a weirdside accent. Whether a self-indulgent diversion on the part of Mr. Humble or a diversionary and taunting tactic by the real killer, it served only to prolong an arrest in the case by 18 months, which is longer than a week. It wasn't until a quarter century later that DNA evidence on one of Humble's envelopes led to his arrest. By this time, Humble was a hardcore alcoholic, so overwhelmingly drunk that cops had to wait until he was sober enough to even comprehend he was being arrested. According to O'Gara, Humble was pressured into taking the fall by police who wanted to clear up the entire Ripper letter problem. Letters that allegedly contained bite marks on the envelope that matched those of Billy Tracy. Tracy told... Excuse me. Tracy himself told me this, says O'Gara, and Burl Bear said, can Tracy be trusted to tell the truth? That's a good question, Burl, says Burl. Humble first pleaded not guilty, but finally changed his plea. Sentenced to eight years in prison upon his release, he said to the press, I was young and daft. 
it was a spur of the moment thing with the first letter. I got carried away. Carried away indeed. When Humble realized that his ill-conceived joke added more death to Sutcliffe's resume, he attempted suicide several times. Each attempt resulted in him not being dead and further reinforced his self-image as that of a complete failure. He can't even kill himself. Even his dedication to drinking himself to death was unsuccessful. Thankfully, today, Humble has moved on from his tragic claim to fame, despite a full-length book about him, Shadow of the Ripper. I personally hammered, no pun intended, Neil O'Gara regarding the Ripper letters, and he firmly states that Billy Tracy personally confirmed to him that it was indeed he who sent the Ripper letters and not the drunken Mr. Humble. Well, we ever know for sure. Well, how did he get Mr. Humble's DNA? Uh, I don't know. Now let's uh, let's go with this. What physical evidence do they have for the person they sent to prison for the Yorkshire? Uh, well, that murders? was before DNA, and he was, they thought it was him, and he said it was him, and they believed it. All right, so that was the confession, and that's it. Yeah, but you never you can't ever believe confessions. I'm sorry. Now, I, I we do ever know for sure? That. Well, perhaps O'Gara is certain, but there's no way for you or I to have his degree of confidence. Billy Tracy hasn't called me on the phone to confess, mock or threaten. Besides, Tracy might be a liar who confessed lies to O'Gara to make O'Gara look foolish when he was on our show. Uh, as with other serial killers, the Ripper's far more than a title given to a heinous criminal. It's a brand name. It has significant market value. Television program, radio interview, or a special feature article in a major publication, such as the one I'm reading from, will have you feverishly devouring at this very moment, is assured of rating and readership by virtue of the Yorkshire Ripper's name value. Trust me, I'm in media. Long before you were born, news was reclassified as entertainment. If it bleeds, it leads. In real life... Here's a definition of news. I'm shocked at how many people do not know or comprehend at all the difference between news and gossip or between news and editorial opinion. So we'll clear that up right now for people who pay attention. By definition, news is defined as, quote, what you need to know and what you have a right to know. Anything other than those categories isn't news. It may be entertaining, fascinating, gut-wrenching, compelling, but it isn't news. In fact, it can push what you need to know and have a right to know off the front page or off the air entirely. News can wind up being replaced by gossip and nonsense. Nothing is less explainable and more exploitable than serial killers. The failure of police to quickly capture the Yorkshire River brought down all manner of condemnation for incompetence. It's not that the police are incompetent. It's that they are inexperienced as a result of movies and television, plus the hyper-coverage of serial killers in the media. People believe that 25, excuse me, 25% of murders are done by serial killers. In truth, it's less than 1%. Serial killers are rare, medium rare, and they're seldom well done. Uh, we, well, we have we have a handful of examples that are well done. Now, I think there's an answer of how many serial killers are in business right now as we speak that haven't been caught that are out there killing people. Oh, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's some. You know, um, we've we've killed many careers here. Yeah, there's only careers. We don't kill people. <laughs> we have people uh, who were almost killed uh, coming on the show. Well, the, um, the 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 books you've written are more in line with um, passion and financial gain than passion, than, uh, financial and uh, financial love. gain for me. <laughs> no, but the the, the 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 reasons that some of these people have uh, kill. Well, usually serial killers kill a whole bunch of people one after another because that's their hobby, right? But the, the stories you've written about aren't like that. I've written about who? The stories you've written about aren't uh, aren't like that. They're not serial killers. They're um, murderers. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I did write about Robert Lee Yates, the Spokane serial killer. Uh-huh. Um, what book was he, that? He and I used to live in the same small town of Walla Walla, Washington. He was um, a security. What do you call it? A uh, 
a guard of the, of the prison, corrections officer. And uh, my daughter and his daughter went to the same school, and uh, the first people he killed that we know of were friends of my family. They were a couple out having a picnic. Uh, and uh, not far from where I used to go practice target practice. And apparently he'd always fantasized about killing people. And here this couple was having a picnic, and he finally crossed the line. He murdered them both. What was the name of the book that we're talking about? Uh, oh, the book about the Spokane serial killer, Body Count. The Hunt for the Spokane Serial Killer by Burl Bear. Charming fellow. Yes. There's, there's a radio show on Outlaw Radio Live.com with Mark Boyer, fact checker. Uh, he, you know, <clears throat> he uh, he disavows any knowledge of your actions. You disavow any knowledge of me? Yes. <laughs> and I have I have been caught many times. You haven't been caught yet. No, I have been caught. Who caught you? Uh, I don't know, but I've been caught, and I disavowed you. I know the Robert Lee is. He's a model prisoner, you know. No, I didn't he's, know. He's uh, he's back in Walla Walla at. Uh, Washington State Penitentiary, the same penitentiary he used to be a corrections officer at. <laughs> and the interesting thing is, when he got his job at uh, the prison, they take pictures of employees. And they took his picture, the same way they take pictures of the prisoners. You know, they hold that old thing that's got their prisoner number on it, you know. They do the exact same thing with the employees. So in the book, there's a picture side by side of uh Robert Lee Yates as a security or what we call a corrections officer there, and Robert Lee Yates as a prisoner there. Now, being a military guy, he knows how to take orders, so he's a model prisoner, doesn't cause anybody any problems. Try to do an interview or something with him, and he won't do it. He goes, why do people care about me? I've said everything I'm going to say. i got nothing new to talk about. Uh, All right. <clears throat> that was your serial killer book. Yeah, that was uh, that's, uh, that's a serial killer. Uh, the guy who wanted to be a serial killer, uh, book headshot. The guy who loved killing people, so he was always looking for an opportunity. Uh, <laughs> he shot someone that was kind of a semi-heroic thing to do. He got a lot of praise for that, and he enjoyed it. So he kept trying to find other ways of killing people or other opportunities, which he did. That's uh, Paul St. Pierre. He shot this perfectly innocent guy. And I think I told you he uh, decided to bury him up in the mountains. He shot him in the head. When he gets up there to bury the body, he discovers the guy's not dead. The bullet had gone through the guy's cheeks and knocked him out, broke his jaw. He came to just as they were about to bury him. Now, he could have taken the guy down to the hospital. He would have lived. His final hand was a broken jaw and a bullet on his cheek. But because he'd already decided to bury him, stabbed him 17 times. Wow. You know, I guess it's hard to go back. He'll change what his plans and he decided to bury somebody. You know, want to get down to it. One of my favorite black comedies, uh, Very Bad Things, um, they accidentally, uh, the uh, bachelor party doers accidentally kill a hooker or some accident. But they panic. Who panicked? Oh, the the everyone at the part at this uh, bachelor party. So they decide to bury the uh, the young lady uh, in the desert. But one of the attendees is Orthodox, and he forces everyone to go back to the grave site, dig the body up, and reassemble the parts so they're in the correct order. Oh, okay, super Orthodox. Yes. <laughs> yeah, those bones are gonna roll to Jerusalem. Oh. It's just yeah, I, I, that movie just cracks me up. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure sex workers enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> Dave, we then we get to the question: Are there dogs in heaven? And uh, sadly, no. <laughs> oh. I know. No, Fido's bones are not going to roll to Jerusalem for the great resurrection. So, but uh, <clears throat> when Abdullah was asked about dogs and uh, after death. He gave a great answer. He says, you'll have your dog, after you die, just as long as you think you need him. How long is that? He also read that once you have passed away, you will regard this world and everything in it 
with the same degree of detachment you currently view the black in the eye of a dead ant. (laughs) Well, what seems important now will seem pretty distant and unimportant. Just as uh, this world is rather expansive and colorful compared to uh, being in the womb of your mother, so also this one is just as dark and restricted as what's next. So it's all relative. I see. Um, I've, I've lost relatives recently. I, I lost one Friday. My brother's son passed away this week suddenly. Very mm. sad. Yeah, you're not supposed to outlive your children. What's that? You're not supposed to outlive your children. I don't know what you said, but I take your word for it. You're not supposed to outlive your children. That's right. Well, that's just my brother, bless his heart, of course, very sad. His son passed away. He goes, well, the only good thing is that his mom passed away first. Because you don't want to lose your kids, you know, yeah. if your kid, that's really... So, Burrow, why don't you tell us why Mom said kill? Why did Mom say kill? Because she was batshit and she wanted uh, $40,000 in this guy's bank account. She got hired as a caregiver. Uh, this guy, Jerry Hyman, uh, worked at Boeing. His mom had cancer, and he was taking care of Mom. And to make it easier to take care of Mom, he hired this woman, Barbara Opal, and uh, her daughter, Heather, and there's another younger child, Tiffany Godot, different father, same mother, to take care of uh, the old lady, who also had Alzheimer's. Well, uh, Jerry had $40,000 in his bank account, and for some reason, Barbara decided she wanted that forty grand. Now, not that you once ever plan to kill somebody, but usually when people plan to kill somebody, they also plan on how to get away with it. Barbara never thought of that. She only thought about up to the part of killing him. She never thought of how to not get caught or how to get away, anything. And she enlisted these kids to kill this guy so they could get his checkbook and give themselves $40,000. And what did she um, she offer these? Uh, in- she cohorts? offered her daughter, 14 years old, 13 when they started, and that was... As she wrote in her diary, the girl wrote in her diary, Mom has promised me a brand new dirt bike if I help her kill Jerry. Boy, I'm excited to get that dirt bike. Well, I'll tell you one thing, the kid never got the dirt bike. But Jerry got got it in the end. Jerry got killed. Nice guy, no reason to kill him at all, except he wanted his 40 grand. Uh, the kid, Heather, and her... Uh, well, the boy who... The enlisted was over 18, so he's in prison for like 50 years. Uh, Heather picked him up at the skating rink when she was, what, 13, 14 years old. They had sex uh, in her bedroom, and when they came out, the mom sat down to have a little talk with uh, Jeff Grote, who was the the guy who was stooping uh, the daughter. It wasn't about safe sex. It was trying to enlist him in the murder of this Jerry Hyman. Lied to him and told him that Jerry was mean, cruel, bad, nasty to poor little Heather. It wasn't true at all. They just wanted the $40,000. They beat him to death with baseball bats and crap like that. Took him buried about on the Indian Reservation by Everett Washington. Body was immediately found. So was uh, Barbara Opal. While he went down the street and stayed at the motel, you know, it never did bother to think any, anything past the murder. Once the body hit the floor, she <clears throat> hadn't thought about anything past that. Yeah, but, the, you know, did they have time to get the cash? Oh, they got a little bit. She wrote uh, to rent an apartment or some other things. You know, she was forging his name on the checkbook. She'd done that before, actually, and got caught. But he didn't fire her. He just said, don't do that. <laughs> wow. So, uh, did you have any, you know, you, it's a, a lot of work to do the research for these books, you know. You know that because you're a fact checker. I am. And, you know, Uncle Google isn't always cooperative. Yes, Uncle Google. You know, it's interesting is the uh, uh, Kensington, for example, who I did many books for, they have fact checkers just like, such as yourself, uh, who work there, and they really do, they check everything. I quoted some professor at some college, and that's where he was when I quoted him, but then the book came out, he was at a different university. 
And so they corrected me on what university was at. Uh, they check everything. Because mm. they also don't want to be sued if you say something really wrong. And they right. protected that from happening <laughs> a few times. Yeah, well, not, you know, you don't want to get sued either. Not that I said anything wrong. It was things I said that were right that were irrelevant. For example, in the book Headshot, there was uh, multiple incest going on in uh, one of the families. And I said that you probably need a chart and a graph to keep track of who was stupid who in that family. And they had me take that section out because... It uh, brought up names and behaviors of people who weren't directly connected to the murder, which is what the book was about. Mm. And they could have turned around and, and sued up because it was inaccurate, but because it held them up to shame and ridicule for stupid each other. Did you, have you had any, um, any interesting uh, occurrences while you're doing the research on any of your books? I mean, like being threatened? Well, whatever. <laughs> I've been threatened... I've been threatened with death in researching projects, but yeah. true crime authors get jaded. But doesn't that doesn't that uh, point you that you're in the right direction? Yes, exactly. If someone gives you, if your life is threatened, you know you're on the right track. Now the problem is they could follow through and kill you, but the odds of that, I mean, you got to take that risk if you're going to write true crime. I think that every true crime author uh, who's really been devoted to being factual and accurate and God knows what else, has had their life threatened. Yeah. I've had a bullet with my name on it shown to me. Um, I don't remember the movie, but there was a, you know, a, a potboiler, you know, crime noir, uh, mm. and a reporter is getting too close, and one of the underlings says to the boss, why don't you let me rub him out? And then the boss looks at him and says, so that the police know he's on the right track? That's right. Leave him alone. <laughs> well, uh, George Anastasia, who was the uh, <laughs> writes the uh, <clears throat> the mob uh, column, shall we say, from paper, I believe, is in Chicago. He was targeted for execution, assassination, whatever you want to call it, by the mob on a hit on him because he was uh, doing what he was doing. At the last minute, it was called off because something more important came up. And later, someone, one of the mob guys talking to George said, Oh, you know, there was a hit out on you, but uh, uh, we canceled it. Now, nothing personal, mind you, purely business. <laughs> Seems pretty personal to me if someone kills me. I'd be personally upset. And like I say, I only had a guy... Uh, I mean, I got threatened. I've been threatened by police... Because the policeman was corrupt, they thought I was going to reveal it. I didn't know he was corrupt until he threatened me. Mm. And I didn't reveal it. Someone else did. <laughs> mm. <clears throat> That's so bad. Had... I mean, there's, there's all sorts of careers you can do. I mean, any career you're in can be dangerous. I mean, one reason I'm almost deaf is from working on the radio playing rock and roll. Had these giant headphones on. I was at KJR, Mighty 95, playing the hits. And I thought I'd turn the microphone off, and I turned sideways to put a cart in the cartridge deck to play a commercial. And my headphones went directly against the microphone, oh. and the feedback blew up both my eardrums. Oof. I should have filed with Labor and Industries, but I did so uh, any any career can be dangerous. You could wind up being uh, crushed to death any number of ways. Any, you could get electrocuted playing the hits, I guess. Any career is dangerous. You know what's weird is what? that in Texas, for example, if I'm a true crime author writing a full-length book on a particular case and I want to interview a prisoner, I can't. But if I have some joker who just writes a blog, I can. Now that doesn't make any sense. Well, if it's if if the government is involved, don't expect it. Yeah, that's like the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, I had uh, put in for police reports, and they redact. They take out the names of people that uh, aren't indicted or anything, so you can wind up with all the black lines all throughout the stuff. It's difficult to figure out what they're talking about sometimes because they block out stuff. Fortunately, the prosecutor's office 
had all the same material, and I got it from them, <laughs> where things were redacted, and I could tell the whole story. That was fortunate. I've had some great cooperation from uh, police departments, courts, etc. When I did uh, Murder in the Family, I'm up in Alaska, and, you know, you, they can, one way they, they can kind of control you or keep you down is that you want to get copies of the uh, court documents. <clears throat> it's a dollar a page if they've already been printed. Five dollars a page if they haven't been. Now that has serves no functional purpose except to make it financially impossible for you to get the information. Well, there could be there, there could be another uh, <clears throat> an ulterior motive for such a thing, or at least well, yeah, personally, that's and that's to keep you from getting the information. Well, they're, they're just the amount of the labor involved. You know, they have a lot of things to do on our behalf in. Uh, making, sending out a copier and making copies isn't necessarily one. Well, I'll tell you, the nice folks in Alaska, up in Anchorage, mm-hmm. when I did murder in the family, the guy took me in the back room and said, see this copy machine? I said, yeah, I said, here's your material, go for it. And it had a feeder on it. I just feed the thing in, whoosh, 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 whoosh. Did it all. I said, how much do I owe you? Terrified is what he's going to tell me. He goes, I just read my paper, $12.50. Oh, cool. That was just cost of the paper. But there's others, they want uh, $5 a page. Well, there's several thousand pages. It's impossible. No, and then the it. publisher isn't going to pay for it. No, no, no. You don't get any research budget when you write a true crime book. Wow. <clears throat> that sounds like a serious problem. It is a serious problem. It didn't used to be, but now it is. Uh, I'll tell you what's great is Frank Gerardo Jr., with whom I wrote Betrayal in Blue and A Taste for Murder. Yeah. Uh, he's got all the connections down here, so he's able to get stuff pretty easy. Uh, interviews with, you know, detectives and stuff. They know him and they trust him. I was in that situation in the Northwest. They knew me, they trusted me, and I could get almost anything I wanted. But when I came down here, they don't know me, they don't trust me, and fortunately, uh, I looked up with Frank, and they do know him and trust him, and so between the two of us, we do just fine. Right. Well, you know, uh, a significant portion of your current tome, Betrayal in Blue, is written by the the protagonist of the story. Yeah, Ken Urell. Yeah. Yeah, Ken, uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny, Ken kept a memoir the whole time he's being the second most corrupt cop in the NYPD. He's taking notes. He's writing it like a diary. When he got busted by the cops out of Long Island, they come into his house and toss it in a place like a salad, and they uh, they find his memoir, but they don't know what it is, and they left it behind. Now, it could have, if they would have taken it in, it would have almost been like a confession. But uh, no, they gave it back to him, and it's been lucrative for him because he sold the film rights to Sony, life rights, and uh, but he kept the literary rights. Then we did the book, which we've been making money off of. You know what amazes me? Yes. His true crime writers, including yours, uh, handsome truly, get a bad rap—not by bad rap artists, but say you're making money off of other people's misery because you wrote a whole book on this topic. No one complains about that to the newspaper when they write a story about it, which just skims the surface. But if you spend a year of your life really investigating the case, they say you're making money off other people's misery. They don't say that to TV stations, don't say it to newspapers, don't say it to magazines. They only say that to authors. Well, you you are a a sordid lot. I'm a what? A modern feeder? A sordid lot. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you don't know what sorid means? What? what? Sorid. Lurid, L-U-R-I-D? Well, S-O-U-R. I can't understand what you're saying. That's okay. No one else understands what I no say. No one understands you anyway. <laughs> That's why you're, you're one of the people who need a sign language on the radio for people to know what you're saying. <laughs> and now for the, you know, uh, and for the hearing impaired... Today's yes. top story. <laughs> For oh, the Garrett. hearing impaired on the radio. Yeah, Garrett Morris is too funny. Yeah. Um, they yell at it. They so yell you, you. <laughs> you've written a couple of novel of novelizations of the saint. You wrote your own novel uh, uh-huh. with you as the hero, Headlock. Yeah. 
Yeah, so no one else is going to write a book with me being the hero. Well, that's, that's I figured I had to do it. Uh, maybe as the head communist, but not the head not a communist. <laughs> oh, I'm so just, how do you... Uh, you know, I'm not even. Uh, what am I not? I'm not anything. I'm just a friendly neighborhood Jewish Baha'i, Baha'i Jew, whatever. Uh, I know. I, I have some. My family there that way too. Um, so how did you come up with uh, the story idea? Right, so I'm going to write a saint novel. Now, you know how the general framework of the saint and the material goes. But the story itself is, you know, can be anything. Well, yeah, that's why I make the story up. Well, so the question is, how do you make the story up? Yeah. Uh, well, how does anybody do anything? They just do it because that's what they do. It's like I can't do math. You know, like say was a mathematician. How do you do math? Well, you know, they just they have a, a talent for that. And uh, I can't, uh, I mean, I can't play blackjack in Vegas, you know, because uh, I have to count on my fingers. Ah, and then that would be, um, they'd, give they'd consider that cheating if they uh, <laughs> saw you take your shoe off and start counting. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, I know where I got the, uh, the see, books aren't about plots. Plots just the uh, the track on which you uh, the story rides or the, the book rides. All books are, says Burl Bear, about sin, vindication, uh, cash, and redemption. Sin, redemption, vindication, and cash. That's what all books are about. And there's only, what, 600 plots that exist. It's either a coming-of-age story like the first Star Wars or, you know, uh, there's only so many categories. Hmm. The basic plot of... Uh, uh, Capture the Saint, which is an original Saint novel I wrote, was inspired by a true story. And a lot of uh, novels are inspired by. That's why on Law and Order, they always have that thing, the story you know, isn't true, and it's not based on anything, but it's exactly like something you've seen in the news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ripped it's, from the headlines. Inspired by a true story. Uh, so, I've uh, always... Uh, uh, your, uh, your nephew is a... Uh, a novelist. Um, yes, he's very novel, novel. I got two nephews who are novelists. And uh, he, I believe it's Lee Goldberg. Lee Goldberg. He works with Ivanovich. Uh, uh, Janet Ivanovich. Nice, nice Irish boy. Yes, I'm very fond of her Stephanie Plum series, well, and I'm always fascinated. I'm fascinated yeah. by how she comes up with all the silliness that goes on in those books. Well, as Lee told me, what he was learning from Janet Ivanovich is less is more. Very economical writing, uh, which is exactly the opposite of my influences. I was influenced by Leslie Charteris, who wrote The Saint, who intentionally overwrote. Uh, as he said, uh, what people pay for when they buy his books is like paying for fins on a Cadillac. <laughs> uh, it's intentional. Uh, and well, in fact, when, when I wrote the novelization of The Saint... The publisher said, please write a paragraph in three different styles. Dumb, dumber, and normal. Normal. All right, Burrow. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to you next week. Stay safe. I hope so. Hey, Mark, what's next? Well, it's Magic Man Allen and the Demon of Decadence, me, coming up on Outlaw Radio.